Welcome to this discussion with Sally K. Norton. We will dive straight in. Simple questions, but we'll add, put them together. One, um, what actually is an oxalate? And two, why was it such a big deal for you? Oxalate is a natural compound. Plants make it. It's in nature in lots of places, and it's toxic when you eat too much of it. And I didn't learn in school how much is too much or how it's toxic. All I knew is that it bound calcium and you shouldn't have tea and tannins and oxalates with your meal. And it's really important to get kidney stone patients on a low oxalate diet. And I also knew that it's hard to get them on that diet and doctors don't seem to care about it much. So it must not matter. <laughs> so I got in trouble because I was ignorant about oxalate and I shipwrecked big time and was so shocked that my long list of health problems all seemed to be connected to this problem of eating sweet potatoes every day. I took on an apparently unbalanced diet and chose sweet potatoes as my daily carb when I left the vegan diet. And that just exasperated a problem that was going on at the time. I was so fatigued, so struggling. And by adopting sweet potatoes, I just added to my problems. <laughs> and it took another how long was it? 25 years to figure that out. Wow. Yes. I mean, you were a trained nutritionist, weren't you, when this happened? I went to Cornell. I studied nutrition. I decided to do that in 1976 when I was in seventh grade because I realized, thanks to a science teacher, that the way you eat is everything about how you feel and that things like cancer and heart disease really should be optional because they're not a normal part of human, the human experience. And that if we knew how to eat, then you could avoid all that and be more productive, have more fun, not be a patient, save some money. Like it just made sense that nutrition would be the field to get into to help people not be sick. So Rich? Yeah, yeah I agree. It's, you know, but it... I don't know about you, Sally, but it almost seems like a thankless job. It's, um, you know, when you look at, you know, the, the doctors that are paid, you know, lots and lots of money. And I'm, I work with lots of doctors and I believe that they are there for the right reasons. They get into becoming a doctor for the right reasons. But I think that they are trained um, by the pharmaceutical companies or uh, trained in medication. Um, but what I've found is that the advice that a nutritionist an enlightened nutritionist can give, can quite literally save lives. Yet we seem to be the least paid within, you know, the the, the nutritional sort of medical profession. Um, you know, Stephen and I keep bouncing this back constantly through, you know, the the the, the coaching sessions and training and things that we do, that it's uh, an awful lot of um, free time given educating people because people are almost, when you tell them eating spinach, you know, is is bad for you. They instantly switch off, um, <laughs> and it's it's a hard hurdle to overcome. So, are, are these difficulties that you have found yourself? I mean, obviously, you know, you're uh, an author of a, an incredible book, and now gaining traction within. So, whatever you seem to say now is gaining that traction, and you've gained that uh, authority and trust within you know the the community. But early on, was it was it like that, or were you up against? you know, other people within the, the community and medical profession? Well, being into eating healthy makes you unpopular in every circle. 
right? So you're already this person to turn off and not listen to. And of course, it was really interesting to get back to one of your points at, at Cornell, my TAs, the teaching assistants in my nutritional biochemistry course, were all MDs or they had finished their MD part of their education and were doing a year or so in nutrition, either to get a PhD or to enhance their chances for their residency. I'm not sure, but they uniformly told us that the dietitian status in the hospital was under that of the janitor and that we as dietitians, that's what our, we were expected to become, would have to make our assessment and dietary plan feel like it was the doctor's idea in order for it to get taken seriously. So yes, both at the dining table and in the hospital, the nutritionist is not regarded as important. And yes, the message of my book that the foods we're trusting to be healthy are actually undermining our health is really shocking that someone can bring up this countercultural notion that is poo-pooed in every circle in medicine, online, wherever, and yet it is gaining traction how does one get a countercultural set of scientific ideas out there and have it stick? Because it's changing lives. People literally, you said some information can literally save lives. And I have clients and followers who will tell you just that. So that makes, what, what was surprising to me is when I figured out what was wrong with me, I thought, well, I'm one of this odd set of people that has this little minor problem but I'm going to research it and I'm going to start teaching about it because whoever has this minor little odd problem, no one's going to tell them that. They have no chance of finding out from their doctor, their acupuncturist, their massage therapist, their chiropractor, their best friend, their neighbor, anybody. No one knows about this. So I thought I would just squeak a little bit and share and teach and learn. But much to my surprise, what I think I'm learning is that all of humanity is essentially oxalate poison to some degree or another. Um, we've got a question. Are you okay to take questions from viewers? Certainly. Good. That's good. Right. So, uh, Matthew here. Can too much vitamin C or collagen supplementation uh, activate, I think that would be, the oxalate pathway? Yeah. So, this question is referring to the fact that the body generates oxalate itself and that the tissue that does most of that is the liver. So the liver makes oxalate, which is a shocking idea because everyone thinks the liver detoxes things and that the liver removes toxins, which it generally does, but not when it comes to oxalate. Oxalate is also a metabolic byproduct at low levels. So if you're not overdoing vitamin C in supplements and you're not taking collagen and you're generally healthy and not super inflamed, the body makes a small amount of oxalate, like 10 or 12 milligrams a day. But if you supplement with vitamin C or use collagen supplements, that will increase quite a bit, especially the vitamin C. The vitamin C is the dominant molecule that we call as a precursor. That's a molecule that gets transformed into something else. It's a precursor for oxalate. Vitamin C is the biggest source of endogenous, we call it endogenous oxalate, That's that's which is produced in body cells. So yes, vitamin C is the best way to get into trouble by by way of endogenous oxalate production. And even as much as a tablespoon of collagen or gelatin increases oxalate as measured by oxalate in the urine, that's how we guesstimate this process typically is measuring urine levels after a challenge test and so on. Because the urine is the primary fluid by which we excrete the oxalate since we can't 
detox it. We have no way to transform oxalate itself. We have to just excrete it. And the kidneys have the bulk of that job. My thoughts were that, uh, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more about Sally's journey in regards to the transition and, you know, what sort of things that, how did you notice that you were unwell originally when it came to this? Because it's, um, I mean, it, it just baffles many people that these foods, you know, we're told spinach is a superfood, um, turmeric, you know, all of these other things. Uh, and I've been guilty myself of consuming lots of these foods during my early days, gravitating into becoming ketogenic and then eventually carnivore. But I was, I used to consume lots of spinach and kale smoothies with black pepper and turmeric. Um, you know, I believe that these are really good for me and I felt amazing, but I felt amazing in spite of, and not because of, it was because of all of the other changes that I had made. Um, it's only through laziness that I begin to, I, I say lazy, I, sh- I shouldn't, I shouldn't say laziness really, but if, if through convenience, because to cook vegetables or to make smoothies took time, whereas just to fry a steak or cook some eggs took <laughs> considerably less time. So, I, but I realized that. When I took out these plant foods and I took away the, this, you know, these smoothies and um, all of these other things that I was doing that I was told was good for me, that I felt even better. And that's what led me down this rabbit hole into researching, you know, what foods actually contain in regards to vitamins and minerals. Because we're told to me that these foods are incredibly nutrient dense. But the truth is they're not. They, they, they are incredibly low uh, density in regards to vitamins um, especially when we compare that to highly bioavailable, you know, animal proteins. But I'd like to hear a little bit about your story and your journey. And I think um, the listeners would love to to do so as well, if, if that's okay. Sure. You brought up lots of different issues, including the idea of nutrient density, which is based on calories. <laughs> and, and the saddest thing of all in nutrition is the lack of attention to bioavailability. Just because you can burn something up in a lab and say that there's so much calcium or whatever there doesn't mean that that's something your body can get access to and use as a nutritional substance. And that's some some kind of weird fig leaf to preserve our notion that we should get the population on these plant foods, which has been going on too long. So we're, we're manipulated in our thinking, which limits your free choice, really, when you were trying so hard to eat well. It's because of all the advice we're getting, which isn't really based on much. And, you know, I was trying to do right by my body since I was in kindergarten. I would come home and tell my mother what they taught us in school to eat healthy. We're supposed to have so much of this or that because I was sick as a little kid and I knew I didn't want to be sick and I would do whatever it takes to be well. So many of us who get in trouble with our health, we're already at risk and we're, we're, trying to pull ourselves in a healthier direction and it backfires. And I literally started having arthritis as a 12-year-old and some neurological symptoms. But I was also a great eater of beet greens. And I think that was happening in the summer when we were harvesting the beets and the beet greens and eating them. And I was a big eater as a kid. I could eat massive amounts of food. And uh, I, I liked real food. <laughs> I was a gardener by age nine. And my mom cooked everything from scratch for the most part. I mean, she did take shortcuts when we were little with the hot dogs and the Campbell's tomato soup. But, um, you know, I, basically we weren't given a lot of, you know, soda pop and junk food growing up. So 
I ate a lot of food. I didn't feel well. It became a problem in college where I developed a foot pain problem that ended up being nearly a decade of being directly crippled and another two more decades of being subpar function with my feet and connective tissue. So I've been having issues that I now understand were related to oxalate most of my life, basically since puberty. And I didn't recognize it until I almost turned 50. And that was 10 years ago. It'll be 10 years ago in November when I got serious about the diet. But I had no idea. I had no urinary tract symptoms that really a big problem other than I had cloudy urine most all the time forever. I never had kidney stones. I didn't have UTIs, any of that. But I did eventually have on and off little bouts of, of genital pain, like burning and real uncomfortable. And I had a bout of that in 2009. And that led my husband to a Google search. And he found the Volvar Pain Foundation, which is based in the U.S. on the Atlantic coast in North Carolina and has been for 30 years teaching a low oxide diet for vulvar pain, other forms of genital pain for men and women. And they learned through the course of they, them teaching the diet and doing it themselves that connective tissue problems were related to oxalate. And so they saw this as a connective tissue disorder that oxalate was creating. And that's what was going on with my feet. I, I never had proper strong connective tissue in my feet. And when you have connective tissue that's weak, that causes pain. And I, I had these feet that required shoes all the time. I couldn't even stand in my own kitchen in bare feet for more than five or 10 minutes without them aching. And that's the, this feet were sort of spreading most likely under the weight of standing and that spreading caused the pain. Uh, so <laughs> all of this I had to discover late in life because I didn't know that oxalates and acidity breaks collagen makes it oxalate lower cellular metabolism, makes it hard for tissues to repair, uh, and that you can get into uh, pretty much anything that can go wrong with cells, cellular energetics, cellular metabolism, cellular redox balance. Oxalate can kick that off and keep it going indefinitely. And you're, you can do the best you can to prop yourself up in a lifestyle that allows you to cope, but really still having a chronic problem that can be slowly progressively degenerative. And by the time you hit your late 40s, you're having surgeries and you're having, quote, menopause and, and aging problems. <laughs> and I think that's the thing. People will blame the aging process on many things that have just been accumulative through so-called, you know, um, uh, healthy eating habits, which, yeah. as we know, are not healthy. But it... Um, I'm. I was quite shocked because I mean, the oxalates can kill you. They're deadly. Um, That's true. There's, you know, there's been documented cases of uh, four thousand, as little as four thousand milligrams of oxalates causing death. Um, there's a few cases of five thousand, and the amount I believe, and you may, you know, have a better understanding on this than, than I do, but fifteen thousand, you know, would probably kill an adult human. Uh, Any pretty much immediately, right? Pretty much anybody, it'd be a deadly dose, right, at 15. But at five, for some of us, that can also mean death. Might take a few hours, a few days. Some but people when, are tolerating diets that are at 3,000. With the spinach smoothies and the almonds and the plant-based keto is probably the highest oxalate diet we have because people get so reliant on the nuts and the greens 
the low carb fruits and so on, you can get into berries and then the, throw in the turmeric, which isn't <laughs> people get in big trouble attempting to do something well. And that's what's so immoral and, and just so heartbreaking for me is that trying really hard to do the right thing could backfire. And I think a lot of people who, some of the cases in the literature, most of the cases in the literature that we see, these case reports, are people that were attempting to prevent illness or to, um, you know, ameliorate an illness by doing these antioxidant diets and things like that. Yeah. it's The thing with oxalate dumping is it does get blamed for a lot of things, and which is a very neat segue to one of the questions here. Um, the carnival cabbie is saying, listening, hoping, hoping my diagnosis of gout is oxalate dumping. Is it possible that gout symptoms or gout-like symptoms could be oxalates? Definitely. Oxalates on the way in and on the way out because oxalates cause a, a chronically high exposure to oxalates through your diet or vitamin C or collagen will create a situation where oxalates built up in your body. That oxalosis, that um, oxalate toxic burden in your body will keep your oxalate levels high. So even after you've changed your diet, you may still have a very high oxalate situation and a, a cyclically toxic scenario for a long time to come. And I wrote a little blog on my website about the gout issue because I had gout in college. I was a vegetarian. I was very fit and trim despite having crippled feet. I, my feet didn't make me fat right away. I eventually did go up to dress sizes, not being able to walk and being stressed and starting eating bagels to cope. But, you know, I, I thought how odd, how odd since at the time gout was blamed on maleness, obesity, meat consumption, and alcohol consumption. And none of those things were me. How could I know? And then it turns out that the body may be using uric acid to dissolve oxalate crystals. So uremia or uric acid follows an oxalate problem, in it, probably. And you can have both high, high oxalate and high uric acid. Both of them contributing to various types of kidney stones and also contributing to gout. Gout is just a generalized inflammatory reaction to crystals. There's at least five kinds of crystals that can form in tissues. And any kind of inflammation that's involving joint tissues in reaction to a crystal is a form of gout. We call the other non-uric acid gouts pseudogout and we, we, because we have a drug for uric acid gout. We don't have drugs for the others, so we just kind of dismiss them. But the truth is that gout is just an, an inflammatory reaction to crystals and joints. Oxalate is a very common crystal and joint that can get transformed into uric acid crystal as the body is trying to remove it. We think there's very little science looking into this. There's not necessarily the incentive to do the science to be able to say with proof. I, th I think one of the things... I would say, it was. I mean, I was low-carb 10 years ago. Basically, my history, you don't know me very well, Sally, but I was doing everything perfectly. I was an athlete like you and, um, you know, doing the skim milk and porridge oats and fruit and not touching red meat, no fat. Uh, personal trainer running three times a week, 10 miles, and I was getting fatter, sicker, pre-diabetic. I had a big rash here, a coronary artery calcium scanner, 639, never smoked, never drunk. So your story, when you went... Uh, well, none of that's me, you know. I was the poster child for the the food guidelines, and it absolutely killed me. So then, when I 
went low carb and then ketone finally carnivore about five years ago. I was still very sceptical about oxalate dumping. Yes, I was the same as Rich. I was an idiot. I did all the smoothies and all that and turmeric and black pepper because it makes it more bioavailable. And then one day I had a crystal. Uh, actually, you can, you can see I was looking at the wrong bit because I've got a mirror on my camera. But yeah, and I started having dumping out of my own eye. So I was very sceptical until that happened. And I thought, well, I'm getting this. And um then I wanted to mitigate the pain because it was it was quite uncomfortable actually. Um and we've had loads of people asking these sort of questions. So if you are experiencing oxalate dumping and once a week man, oh by the way, when you first came on there were hundreds of messages just telling you how wonderful you are. Um we we would have possibly filled up a whole hour of those messages so uh, i'm just sticking with the actual questions once a week man who has previously said he's not weak anymore and it's thanks to you um he's been oxalate dumping for a couple of years now would one square of dark chocolate a day be a good dose to slow this and if you could broaden that out to what is the best way to slow it answer that question maybe and then is there other ways to slow down oxalate dumping uh, this oxalate dumping thing is really phenomenal. The, the, the word dumping was coined by Susan Owens, and it really refers to an extreme event of high purging from the tissue. So this is in the tissues and some probably major inflammatory cytokine storm and so on is encouraging multiple tissues to clear at the same time. This is very dangerous. It's a form of intoxication, and you don't want that to go on. So it's very important if you're having extreme episodes of pain and fatigue and when you're really sure it's oxalates the way you would know that is that you might see some outward signs so cloudy urine can be confirmation that what you're going through which usually involves a mood change usually when you're oxalate clearing in a heavy way you've got neuroinflammation that causes changes in your attitude and your mood you become pretty despondent despairing your future is dark and your ability to solve problems and be handle the situation goes way down and your belief that it has anything to do with oxalate disappears. So if you think you're dying and you need your elbow to cut off, that could be a sign that you're clearing an oxalate. So yeah, and it's usually very painful. So if you have a lot of pain and mood changes and energy dip and you see the cloudy urine or you find tartar in the teeth, I recommend people check behind the incisors each morning and see if a lot of tartar collected recently chip it off so you can get a fresh look tomorrow. That could be a sign of high blood levels of oxalate in the body. So if the tissues are releasing oxalate into the blood, chances are it might affect your the tartar in your teeth. It can affect the amount of junk that collects in your eye overnight if there's a lot of it or if even stuck on your face. That could be oxalate clearing. Gritty or burning stools could be a sign of oxalate clearing and skin things, little rashes and boils. Like you say, sometimes people release whole crystals from their eye area and from their skin, their scalp, uh, jaw and pain, facial pain, bone pain. These can all be signs of the oxalate clearing episodes. You do not want to let them carry on and carry on or be really extreme because it is causing additional vascular stress and damage. Uh, so you do want to slow this down. And it just seems to be that the body's got this mechanism for knowing when you're eating oxalate and that puts it in a holding mode or a sequestration mode to try to keep it out of the blood and keep the kidneys under reasonable workload. When you go really low for a long time, depending on the other re resources you have, and I think literally that a low carb diet and a low mineral intake will delay the oxalate clearing. 
And I've heard people who have been carnivore for years and years finally seeing a sign three, four, five, or six years out after they've been off oxalates pretty much 100%, except a lot of people hang on to a little bit of tea and chocolate in their carnivore diet. And that is useful to be eating some oxalate. It's a little tricky because there's not necessarily an exact amount of food or exact amount of oxalate in a particular situation. You have to kind of work with your body to see where the lever is. So it's kind of like working the gas pedal and, and clutch on your car. You need to know how to kind of work with them and feel the body response. But if you're really sick, the good answer is to start adding in some oxalate every day. I usually recommend you start with a dinner meal because the the clearing and housekeeping that's happening in the body to get rid of the oxalate poisoning is tends to happen while we're resting overnight. So if you're on a normal cycle and you sleep at night, that's the time of day your body's more likely to do this. So by timing your oxalate dosing for around the end of the day, might, you might get more effective response because you need enough. And you need a food that you're not also allergic to. So you got to be careful about that. You also need to vary it enough because if you took that same square of chocolate every single day, your body would just get used to that as normal and ignore it. So it may not be strong enough. So you may need to pulse it every third day. You may need to double the amount of oxalate. If you're too sick and tired to be thinking about, oh, I should have four sweet potato fries or three cups of tea or something, you could keep something like beet juice in the refrigerator and take a jigger of beet juice, something simple. Uh, tea is very popular thing to use if you tolerate it. You probably need to use double strength by using two tea bags. It's the amount of tea, not the amount of water <laughs> that matters. So to increase the strength of the tea, you need to use more tea. Um, and you play around. I usually ask people to start with about 30 milligrams of oxalate, which is almost two tea bags worth of oxalate. And off the top of my head, without knowing the percent of dark chocolate, you know, I can't really tell you how much chocolate it is. But the the amount is something you can start figuring out. If adding it isn't helping you, you're probably not doing enough. Brilliant. Um, we have a question here, uh, which I'm very ignorant of, but uh, that's why you're here. Because um, there are supplements that help with this issue, like Chancer Pyedra, which I think is a herbal thing, or phosphorus, and others, yet no one ever talks about it. Why? Does, does, does that ring a bell with you, Sally? Yes, yes. Chancra Pedra is a very um, popular, what they call stone breaker herb, it's said to help you break up kidney stones. It's it's not necessary because really the things you need to break up stones are citrate and enough calcium and you need your pH and your body controlled. So it's it's one way to do it, but not my preferred way. I'm not really a big fan of playing around with herbs. They're drugs and they're complicated and it's something you could become allergic to. It really, it's simpler to make sure you have enough citrate in the urine. And you can do that using bicarb and using citric acid in supplements like magnesium and potassium and calcium citrate. Lemon juice is very helpful and well-documented to have enough citrate. If you get a half cup of lemon juice a day, which is a lot, um, you can do a lot to break up kidney stones and help you avoid getting kidney stones with basically keeping the pH right in your urine. And there's lots of tools for doing that. You don't necessarily need a magic herb to do it. Some people think it's benefiting them, but the literature is pretty equivocal about whether it is even effective or not. Um, 
Carl's just quickly asking, have you ever come across anyone with teeth sensitivity? Oh, yes. This is a very common issue with the sinuses and the jaw and the face. This is all high vascular tissue full of calcium, very attractive to oxalate. We pretty much all have some form of oxalate damage in our the roots of our teeth or our jaw. And if you are now on a low oxalate diet and you went from like plant keto to carnivore keto or, you know, you are likely to get some episodes with some, you know how that eye crystal hurt a lot? <laughs> that the mouth pain can be intense. You're going to feel like you need your tooth pulled. It can be quite difficult. It might last, you know, up and up and down a bit for six months or more. So if you have the tooth sensitivity Check it out. Make sure you don't have an infection, but be very careful about the dentist rushing to the conclusion that it is an infection. Get two or three opinions. Don't give up on a tooth prematurely because mostly the low oxalate diet, whatever form you do, especially if you're getting enough citric acid, will improve the dentition and help you repair your jaw and keep your teeth. That's a great answer. I'm sure Carl will be very happy to have that question answered. Co-create happy. Thank you for the um, super chat. Can oxalates trigger heart and or kidney issues like AFib, heart rate irregularities, lower heart functionality rates, blood clots, lower kidney creatine and filtration rates? <laughs> nice yes, big question. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Most definitely. You know, the the pacemaker in the heart requires an even level of calcium in the blood and the extra, the interstitial fluids need the right electrolytes and oxalate messes up electrolytes locally around the heart tissues and in the blood generally and can contribute to AFib and complete heart failure. It's called heart block when the electro, uh, the electricity of the cells that maintain the heart rate fail. And you literally, that can be a form of a heart attack. And that's well documented in the literature. In fact, with these cases of dietary oxalate poisoning, the, the thing that ultimately kills the person is the heart attack. And there's plenty of uh, evidence of uh, the heart muscle tissue collecting oxalate and having long-term fibrotic problems. So when you get fibrosis, the valves don't work as well and you get vascular changes. The capillary beds all over the body, including in the eyeballs, can be degenerated by the presence of oxalate in the blood. So even while you're dumping oxalate, you could be gener degenerating the capillaries that feed your cardiac tissues, your eyeballs, and everything else that you love That's whole, that should be held near and dear to you, your magical body that's doing its best to cope with toxic foods. Well, yes, I, I, I think Landa's here as a magical body because he, he asked the question. They asked a question last week. Anyway, I do have a question this week. While Sally Norton is on, I am carnivore, but there is a doctor that is stating eating dark green vegetables to, prom to promote nitric oxide. Is it worth trying? The body can make and manage its nitric oxide without you thinking you need to get in there and punch it with something. It, the, a good way, though, to improve vascular health is through sauna. Sauna restores an enzyme that lets you make nitric oxide. So if you feel like you're slow at your, if your nitric oxide control and metabolism in your body isn't as great as it could be, do a sauna a few days a week or really sauna is best done frequently. If you can spend a little time sweating every day, that's probably good for the nitric oxide issue and you don't need vegetables to beat yourself into it. I, this idea that some little theory can be turned into a lifestyle hack is fantasy yeah i think we attribute too many of the benefits like we, we quite often say that one 
item, one vegetable will confer such a benefit. But then we don't account for all of the all of the, the rest of the downstream deleterious impacts of all the other phytoalexins and plant toxins that come with it. There are other ways to increase nitric oxide. We hope you enjoyed the oxalate discussion with Sally K. Norton. This was an edited version from our regular Sunday livestream Q&A. To hear about calcium supplementation and its pros and cons for mitigating oxalate issues, please look for Part 2 with Sally K. Norton, Richard Smith, and Coach Stephen. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Your support means the absolute world to me. And if you're enjoying this show, I've got a small favour to ask you. I'd be incredibly grateful if you would consider becoming a supporter and make a small monthly donation. Your contribution will really help to improve the show. I'll be able to improve the software, maybe put a few more episodes out and do many things that I'm hoping to do in the future. Do them a lot quicker. So it's a small monthly contribution. You can cancel at any time and the link is in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.